morning, church. If you're new here, I'm really happy to have you. My name's Daniel. I'm one of the pastors, and so glad I get to open God's Word and teach this morning. I'm expectant. I'm excited. Well, every time we come to this, this time, we come with open hearts, like we just sang. We come asking God to, to transform us, to change us. We come ready to get underneath his word, not as judges over God and his word, but as, as his people underneath his word, as sub- submitting to him as God and we his people. And what that means for us is that we need to obey every single word that he lays out for us. If we say we're followers of Jesus, we have to be ready and willing to submit to him in everything he says. And the problem that we have sometimes that when we come to the word is that we hear words that are frankly very difficult, seemingly impossible, like today's command to forgive 70 times 7, literally over and over and over again, even if someone sins against you all those times in one, one day. So the word comes at us And we have to be ready and willing to say, Lord, I'll do whatever you say. The good news I have for you today is that there's help for us to do these commands. There's help for us. And so we'll see that as we move through our text. Last week, we heard a startling word on the reality of hell. And it was really a warning that Jesus brought to the Pharisees, who were teachers over Israel. But this week... There is really a turn in Jesus' attention in his teachings, and he's turning his attention to his disciples, those who were going to be the teachers of the new covenant law, those who were going to lead the church. And so he offers them a warning, and it's a warning that's pertinent for us who are a part of his church today. So we need to hear these words. Let's look at verse 1 together. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. So we live in a fallen world and we Our own fleshy hearts are very prone to just jump in line and do exactly what the world is doing. Further, we have an enemy. We have uh, the devil who is very much looking for someone to devour. So Jesus is right. The temptations in this world are abundant. They abound. But Jesus says emphatically, Woe to the one through whom those temptations come. Woe to the one through whom those temptations come. Now remember that word woe is, is really, you can take it as, as really Jesus saying something like, how miserable is that person who is in that state? How miserable will it be for them? In this, in this sense, he's, he's saying how awful, how miserable it will be for the one who causes others to sin. Jesus gives an illustration that's fitting with that definition of woe to you. He, he, he begins to, to unpack an illustration. He says, it's better if a millstone is hung on your neck and you're thrown into the sea 
then that you would have the opportunity to live and cause others to sin. Those are startling words. Those are heavy words that Jesus brings. The millstone was a heavy stone that they used for milling grain. So there's no hope for that person who's got the millstone on his neck and is thrown into the sea. Jesus is serious about those who would cause others to sin. Now I find that word cause really interesting here. And there's a couple things that I want to point out, what it means and what it doesn't mean. First off, it's important to say that everyone is responsible for their sin. Church, we are responsible for the decisions that we make in this life, every single one of us. Nonetheless, Jesus is pointing out here with this word, cause others to sin, that there, there, uh, there is an opportunity that we have as influencers to cause somebody to sin, to move somebody, to influence someone towards sin. We're responsible for our sin, and yet we can influence others to sin. Jesus seems to be referring, if you look at the context of this text, he seems to be referring to this reality that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, have misread God's law. They've twisted God's law through their teaching, through their living. They're leading others astray. They're influencing people to sin. God's people, God's nation are being caused to sin by the lives and the teaching of the Pharisees. You may remember Jesus says something similar in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, where he says, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. So even in that passage, there's, you can see there's a responsibility that the, that the person who are, are being led to sin, they are not entering the kingdom because of their sin. And yet, it seems that Jesus is highlighting that there is a, there is a, a rank. It seems that those who influence to sin have the greater sin in this scenario. Those who influence ha have positions of influence, positions of power in this life, whether it's wealth or through teaching or, or as a parent or as, as a political or spiritual leader, we will be held more responsible for what we do with our power. Notice how Jesus uses this, this phrase, little ones, to describe those being led astray. What does that make you think of? It makes you think of kids, right? It's little ones who are really at the mercy of their guardian, at the mercy of their parents. And Jesus is really drawing a comparison, and he's showing that, that these Pharisees, these experts in the law, those who have influence in Israel, are responsible for those who they are teaching. They're responsible for them like little ones. In church, you need to know that, that the ultimate guardian, the ultimate father of these people that Jesus is talking about, these little ones who he says in another place, the little ones who believe in him, these, this guardian is God. He is the ultimate caretaker, the ultimate father. And these, these teachers of the law, even these disciples who are going to be leaders over them, are really like under shepherds, they're under leaders, they're, they're the guardians who have been placed in positions of power by God 
to care for the people that God ultimately oversees and cares for. And, and Jesus here with this language of that, that's so stark and so startling is putting on display for us the jealousy, the protective nature of our Father. Our God is a protective God over his people, especially as it relates to our relationship with him. Anything that would lead God's children away from him makes him angry. And you need to know the same wrath that was created for and stored up for Satan and his fallen angels, those who led humanity astray, is stored up for those who would mislead like him. And we, we saw that picture last week of the, the rich man being suffering in hell, and he's, he's really begging for a drop of water. And those are horrible and hard pictures to grapple with. And I don't wish hell on anyone, but I look at this context, this picture that the Lord is laying out for us, and it makes me thankful for a good and just and jealous and protective God. He will not let people forever lead us astray. He will put an end to human suffering at the hands of corrupt men. Amen? These are strong words, but they put God's heart of justice on display. It puts his love for his people on display. But remember what I said earlier. This is a warning, not for the Pharisees, but for the disciples. It's a warning for the disciples. In verse 3, he says these words, pay attention to yourselves, to yourselves. Say that with me. Pay attention to yourselves. Jesus speaks to his disciples, those who are going to lead his church, those who would be given the authority to be gatekeepers, the final uh, word on his words. And he says, Pay attention with the way you live, with the way you teach, that you would not be one who causes others to sin, that would cause and influence others to sin. Pay attention to yourself. Now, church, while none of us here have the influence that the Pharisees or that the disciples would have, all of us to some degree have influence in our lives whether it's in our home with our spouse or our kids, whether it's in our workplaces, whether, whether you, no matter where it is, you have, an inf you have influence, especially in the church. And in all of these things, in all of these areas, Jesus is called to you today when he says, when he says the disciples, pay attention to yourselves, it's for us. Pay attention to yourselves so that in these areas of influence in your life, you are not by your teaching or by your living or by your speech modeling or excusing things like gossip or greed or sexual immorality, all the while claiming the name of Jesus. Jesus takes seriously sin in the community. Jesus is setting up, just like Israel was a light in an example to the world, he is setting up for the church an outpost, a picture of the kingdom of God that he wants, to, wants us to put on display for the world. Amen? So he cares about sin in the community. 
And he cares especially that we would not be those who would cause others to walk into that sin by influencing them with our lives or with our speech. May we never be those who mislead, church. And I'll just say on behalf of the pastors, may we never mislead you. We are committed to teaching and sitting under the word of God as it, it being our final authority. And we invite you, any member who comes into covenant membership with us, we invite you to keep us accountable, hold us accountable to the word of God. We take this seriously because the Lord takes it seriously. Now, as we move into the next part of the teaching, which I think is, is really the, the impossible commands that, that I was talking about earlier, we'll see that Jesus' command, pay attention to yourselves, it has implications not for just our individual lives, but for the community, our community. Look at verse 3 and see what I mean by impossible commands. These, these are crazy words of Jesus. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. These are hard words. <laughs> I just want to make a few comments about it. First, notice that it's about he says, if your brother sins against you. So this is referring to fellow disciples. This is having to do with the church family. Secondly, he points out these two little words that are so difficult for us. He says, if they sin, rebuke him. First off, we don't use rebuke a whole lot, but that's just a, a strong kind of exhortation to someone to basically stop what they're doing. It's expressing... Uh, yeah, brokenness over it and, and sadness and saying, this, you can't walk in this way anymore. And Jesus says, if you see somebody sin, or especially here in this context, if they've sinned against you, what do you do? You rebuke them. Now, there might be three of us in this room who are like, that's easy, I'll do that, no problem. But the bulk of us, the bulk of us, and you guys laugh because it's true, are like, talk to them about that one day you know we don't want to talk to people we don't want to confront people in their sin but notice here that Jesus he doesn't want sin left unchallenged in the community in the church he does not want sin unchallenged why well one just because this is his church is what we were just talking about a second ago he cares about the purity the holiness of the church but but more specifically, he doesn't want it unchallenged because of the ten tendency for us to get bitter and, and harbor a grudge and fall into the temptation ourselves to sin against them because of our anger towards them. Jesus says, go to them, rebuke them, speak frankly, though peaceably, Got to take, take your cues from the entire Bible. We are called to go gently, but we must go and speak to them. Church, how many divisions would have been cut off if we would have followed those two little words when we've been sinned against? I could give you a dozen examples in my life 
and in the life of this church that I've watched it not happen and it stir up all kinds of bitterness. It's like, it's like as we think through that offense over and over again throughout the day and throughout the week and throughout our life, we're throwing little pieces of kindling on the fire, another log, until what happens, it's a blaze in our souls, wreaking havoc on us and our relationship with others. It wreaks havoc, sets the whole community ablaze, church. Isn't that right? When we don't bring the sin of another to their attention, this cannot be true of us, amen? We cannot do that. If you believe someone has sinned against you, especially if it's against you, go to them. Even today, maybe after this service, you need to call somebody up. Maybe you need to grab somebody in these pews and talk to them. Jesus says, thirdly, if they sin and they say, I repent. So they respond well to your rebuke. They say, I repent. I won't do that anymore. I'm sorry I did that. Jesus says, forgive them. Now these next two words are just as hard as the first ones. Harder, actually. Forgive them. What a difficult thing for God to ask us to do. What is forgiveness? It is the opposite of holding the grudge, holding the hurt. It's a releasing the hurt. Saying, I'm not going to hold that against you anymore. I'm not going to cause you. I'm not going to demand you to pay a penalty for that sin. It's a releasing of that person. What a difficult thing to do. But what a powerful thing to do. Forgiveness has the power to reconcile the most broken relationships, doesn't it? Forgiveness has the power to transform a marriage that is falling apart into a thriving marriage. Forgiveness has power. In church, God wants a community that models forgiveness. Not a church divided by individuals unwilling to follow Jesus on these commands, but a church that is willing to model forgiveness to one another. Jesus takes this command a step further, and this is where it gets even crazier. It feels impossible. He says, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Imagine if I were to go to Mike's house and in front of his kids, in front of his wife, I dealt harshly with him. I screamed at him as his pastor. Seven times in one day. And I keep on coming back. I'm like, Mike, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. You! Mike, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have done that. What does Jesus say he has to do? You must forgive me. Jesus gives an imperative. You must. It's a command. Lord, what are you saying? And if that feels crazy, look to other gospels where Jesus is recorded saying 70 times 7. 490 times, then you're off the hook. No, over and over and over again, you forgive the person who comes to you. And repents. Man, that's hard. Jesus 
calls us to forgive. And whether you've heard this teaching a hundred times or this is the first time you're hearing this, it's probably startling to you. It should be. It was startling to me again this week as I was preparing this message. All kinds of questions are flooding through my head. How can I possibly trust somebody if they keep sinning against me again and again? How do I know if they've truly repented, right? What if they did such a harm to my family? What if they touched my children? How could God ever ask us to to forgive somebody who has done some horrific thing against us? That seems impossible. You're not wrong. It feels like an impossible task that the Lord is calling the church to. But the answer to these questions, church, is found in the gospel of Jesus. I love how Paul sums up forgiveness in Ephesians 4.32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There is a ground for Jesus' commands. And that ground is always the gospel. The ground is these words that if we get them, all those questions about forgiveness, can I really forgive that person? They've done it this many times. Can I really forgive them? Those questions will fall away when we understand how great our sin is before God and how great his forgiveness is for us today. And I'm not saying it's just simply going to get, it's just going to be easy every time. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying it's going to begin to make sense why Jesus can say such a crazy hard thing. Because, friends, our sins have been piled up against the Lord, not just over the span of our lives, but even daily. If we were to pile up our sins from one day before the Lord, we would be amazed at how God forgives you and me. The reason that he calls you and me, the reason that he invites us to forgive in this radical way is that he has shown us radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. Isn't that right? Jesus wants us in our forgiveness of others to reflect his heart to one another and even to the world. And you know what? God's heart of forgiveness is not like ours. It's not suspicious like ours. He doesn't come to us when we come to him saying, I'm sorry for the hundredth time. He doesn't ever say, wait, are you sure? I don't see any tears. I don't see you begging me on your knees. No, friends, he doesn't ask us for all the pretty words. He, like the father with the prodigal son, runs to us. And embraces us and puts the ring on our finger and invites us in wholly, wholeheartedly. That is our God's heart of radical forgiveness to us. And that's what he is inviting us to reflect. God's merciful heart of forgiveness will never change. As long as you have breath in this world... If you're sitting in this room and you wonder if God could still forgive you, 
If you're still breathing, the answer is yes. Even if you've done these sins a hundred thousand times, if you still come back to him saying, God, I repent, I need you, I'm sorry for what I've done, Jesus is ready to receive you. Jesus calls his disciples to do what he has done with our brothers and sisters. And I said it before, but I want to say it again. Friends, the reason that this command is so important for us is that we are a picture of heaven to one another and to the world. The way that we interact with one another when we come together, when we live out life as a church together, is a picture to one another of heaven. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of God's forgiveness to us when we forgive another. And boy, does it show the world that there's something different about our community. This is why Jesus calls us so strongly to pay attention to our lives and to forgive in such a radical way. Now, there's a few things I want to point out that I think we need to understand about forgiveness. First, if we refuse to forgive, we have a bad understanding of God's forgiveness of us. We have not understood the gospel if we refuse to forgive. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if you will not forgive, your sins will not be forgiven. That's a very strong word. And he's not saying forgiveness is is a work added on to your faith by which you'll be saved. That's not what he's saying. But what he is pointing out is that if you refuse forgiveness, your heart has not been changed. You do not understand the gospel. Like the man in the parable who is forgiven an enormous debt, only to go out into the streets and choke one of his debtors, debtors and demand that he pay him back. What does God say is true of that person? That they will suffer for their sins. They will pay back the very last, very last of their sins. What Jesus is showing us is that when we refuse to forgive, we do not understand God's forgiveness to us. Secondly, forgiveness does not always equal trust. So when I'm saying you must forgive, when Jesus says you must forgive, the answer is yes, always. But trust is not always. Sometimes God restores a relationship to exactly what it was before, but sometimes relationships that demand forgiveness do not demand trust. Trust is to be built, and sometimes sometimes it's not even meant to be given at all. We need to understand that. It's really important when there's been great offenses done against us, like abuse. Third, if someone refuses to repent, though you have gone to them, this is important, even if they refuse to repent, we are still responsible, church, to reflect God's heart to them. Now, I know it says in this text, if they repent, you forgive them. But in other places, all over scripture, we see a picture of God who pours out mercy. He causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He calls us to bless those who curse. He calls us to pray for those who persecute us. 
We see that modeled most perfectly when Jesus is on the way up to Golgotha and he's on the cross. He's still forgiving those, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what, they're, what they've done. We are still called to show God's heart towards those who refuse to repent. There's another place you can look at Matthew 18 and see where God spells out steps for how to handle that person in a community, but we're not going to go there today. But I just want to emphasize, we still need to be patient with those who have yet to repent. Why does God require that? Well, forgiveness, church, is oftentimes about the person forgiving than the one being forgiven. Yes, it's a powerful thing when you've sinned against someone, for someone, the person you sinned against to come and say, I forgive you. Wow, the burden falls off your shoulders. What a powerful thing that is. But even more powerful, I believe, is it for us, when we have, when someone sinned against us, for us to be able to say, God, I release that person. I forgive that person. Why is it so powerful? Because in that act of forgiveness, we are putting trust in God who is just. We are putting our trust in God. And when we put our trust in God, we find freedom. And that's what the Lord wants for his community. He wants you free. We are not able to bear sin the way that God bears sin patiently. It eats at us. It destroys us. Further, we are not able to judge the way that God judged. We're not perfect judges. We don't see the whole picture. So God invites you to a place of freedom that simply puts your trust in him and says, God, I lay that person down at your feet. And maybe today that's what you're called to do. Maybe that person's not in this room that you need to forgive. And God would call you right now to lay that person before the Lord as an act of trust and forgive them, release them to God. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. If you feel weak to forgive, I want to ask you to get somebody to, to pray with you after this service. You can grab one of the pastors. We could pray with you. But I also want to ask and invite you to pray the very things that the disciples prayed. After they heard these commands, look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, say it with me, increase our faith. Say it one more time. Increase our faith. Boy, that's a good prayer. That's a good prayer, especially when you're faced with commands like these that seem impossible. That feel like, man, Lord, I have nothing. I can't forgive that person. I only feel hatred, bitterness, anger. Increase our faith. Only faith in a God who is forgiven in such radical ways can cause us to forgive those who have sinned against us. Only faith in this forgiving God can cause us to forgive our spouse who has sinned again and again. It's only by faith that you and I will forgive. Now, if you're still like Daniel, that still doesn't help. There's a little bit more help from Jesus here. Look at the rest of verse five and, or verse six here. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. 
I love those startling images that God gives, that Jesus gives. It's this impossible illustration. He's saying, you could command, if you had faith, a tree to move. That's impossible. But I, I think that Jesus here and Luke, in his editing of these words right now, he is, he's helping us to see that in, with faith, even impossible things are possible. If you think it's impossible, Lord, for me to forgive that person, they've sinned against me too many times, the offense is too great, Jesus says all you need is faith. Faith, not in, it doesn't have to have, be this abundance of faith, but even just a little bit of real faith in our real God can help you do a really impossible thing. Jesus comforts us by telling us not to look to ourselves, but simply to look to God. Put your faith in him today, not in yourself. Amen? If you're wondering if you can trust God today, maybe you've been misled by leaders, maybe you've been misled by parents, spouses, so many times that it's just simply hard to put your trust in him for this sort of thing. I want to call you to look to Jesus Because Jesus puts God on display for us. He shows us what God is like. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, descended from heaven so that you and I could make it all the way home. That's the one I'm calling you to trust. The one who got down off of his throne so that you could, uh, one of his little ones could reach safety. I want to call you to look to Jesus who lived the life that you could not live. He did this perfectly even up to his death, forgiving those who had sinned so grievously against him. He did that for you. Look to Jesus who went up onto the cross to pay for our sins. When we refused to forgive even more for all the sins that we had caused others to walk into and that we ourselves had walked into. Look to this one. Look to this Jesus if you're wondering if you can trust this God in this command. As we go to the Lord's Supper, I just want to talk lastly about the cost of forgiveness for our God. I heard one atheist say in response to a question, what if you're wrong about God? He said, he'll forgive me. It's his job, right? He'll forgive me. That's God's job, isn't it? Now some of us are confounded there because on the one hand, we see the character of God on display that yes, he is a forgiving God. But friends, we must not treat God's forgiveness with with such really blasphemy. It took the Son of God going to the cross to pay a penalty, the penalty that you and I deserve so that we could have a bridged relationship with our God, a reconciled relationship with God. He absorbed all the wrath that we deserve. It's not God's job to forgive like that. Yet, he generously, mercifully does forgive anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. I hope that guy one day comes to Jesus. 
With forgiveness, someone always absorbs the pain and suffering of the sin, whether the one offended or the offender. I just remind you, lastly here, that that's not the end of the story for Christians. When we forgive somebody, every single time we forgive somebody, we're putting the gospel on display. Either when we forgive our brothers who are tr- or sisters who are trusting in Jesus by trusting that their sin was paid for at the cross, and for those who refuse to repent, we put our trust in a God who proved his justice at the cross. He pays for sin at the cross, and he will cause anyone who sins and never repents to pay properly for their sins. We, we're told the vengeance belongs to the Lord. We can put our faith in him. Church, there's coming a day when we will no longer lead someone to sin and we're never going to have to forgive because all things will be made new. I'm so excited for that day, aren't you? God is worthy of our trust today. We're going to put our trust in him and I want to turn now in prayer as we as we go to worship, just ask God to give us faith for these sorts of impossible commands. Go ahead and come on up, Dale. Father, thank you that you have given us this word for this church and for the church universally. And I ask now, Lord, that we would look to Christ who has done the impossible for us and who has forgiven us through his sacrifice. You have forgiven us through Christ's sacrifice. And Lord, because we've been forgiven so greatly, Lord, would you help us to pay careful attention to ourselves, especially as it relates to forgiveness and sin in this community. God, give us grace. Let us look like a picture of heaven to one another and to this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.